Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 19, Hell No, and the Life Everlasting. And so we've arrived at heaven. You might have a vision of heaven in your mind. Perhaps the old picture of angels sitting on fluffy clouds playing harps has made way for a newer, trendier version, like that of the recent TV series The Good Place, where heaven seems to involve being matched with your soulmate and eating lots of frozen yogurt. Perhaps your picture of heaven is more biblically informed. Lions lying down with lambs. Every tear wiped away as suffering is removed forever. We tend to picture heaven as a place that bears little resemblance to our present experience. It's a place we go to when we die. We're used to thinking of heaven as a place entirely separate from earth as well. In reality, heaven and earth overlap. N.T. Wright describes heaven as the control room of earth. Heaven is God's space and earth is ours. But they are not intended to be separate. And the book of Revelation's depiction of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth is a vision of the future in which heaven and earth fully overlap and will do so into eternity. To understand heaven and where we place our hope as Christians, we need to return to the theme of the kingdom of God. What relationship will the old creation have with the new creation? Well, theologian Jürgen Moltmann spoke about two different kinds of futures, Futurum, the future is a continuation of the present, and Adventus, the future arises from outside of time and space as a fulfilment of divine promise. These are Latin terms. And actually, Adventus is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which in Christian usage refers to the coming of Christ in glory. In the resurrection, God has already broken into history, so we have a glimpse of what an Adventist future looks like. This is why we pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. We don't hope to leave earth for some other heavenly realm, but that heaven and earth will be joined together under the reign of God. So now that we've talked about heaven, what's the alternative? In the same way we've got a typical understanding of what heaven is like, we also have a vision of hell in our minds. Perhaps you picture the gnashing of teeth by the lost souls in the nine circles of Dante's Inferno. Or fire and brimstone conjures up another common image. What is hell? In the New Testament, the term often used is Hades, a Greek word. Hades was the Greek god of the dead, but the name Hades also came to be used for the underworld, the realm of the dead, more generally. In the Bible, it's sometimes used in a pretty neutral fashion. It describes the place in which the dead awaited resurrection. In other places, it seems to describe a place where the unrighteous are tormented for their rejection of God. And in the Hebrew Bible, the equivalent word is Sheol. It's possible that Hades refers to an intermediate state, a resting place for those who have died and are awaiting the resurrection and final judgment. Jesus, on the other hand, used the term Gehenna, which refers to an actual physical place in Jerusalem, a valley in which it's believed that some of the kings of Judah sacrificed their own children by fire. And in Jewish religious literature, Gehenna came to represent a destination for the wicked. When Jesus uses Gehenna, it seems to mean the opposite of the kingdom of God, whatever we might understand that to mean. 
We could spend a whole episode just looking at the biblical terminology, but there's a broader conversation to be had about eternal life, one that concerns the dual destinies of eternal life and eternal condemnation. In short, heaven and hell. Ben talks about how judgment and hell are connected, but maybe not in the way that we think. When you think about the last judgment, I don't think the last judgment is primarily about God rejecting all the bad people and accepting all the good people. It's about God judging and condemning and excluding the things in me that need to be judged and condemned and excluded. It is a judgment that heals. It's a judgment that saves. And in the same way, I think the fire that we sometimes associate with hell is a fire that purifies. Christians need that fire, if I can put it that way. Uh, And in fact, if you look in the New Testament, the biggest threats of hellfire are threats directed towards Christians. It might seem surprising to talk about Christians needing hellfire. Perhaps Ben's understanding of hell is a little different to the more traditional version. After all, it's fairly well accepted among Orthodox Christians that after death, believers will enjoy everlasting life with God. That's the line of this creed. How does hell fit into this then? I think we also need to revisit some questions that I've raised in previous episodes. What about those who don't believe in Jesus? Are they hellbound? When we looked at the scope of salvation, I mentioned the Vatican II statement on the fate of the unevangelized. It's now the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that those who do not accept the gospel through no fault of their own will be saved. And there's also an allowance for faithful adherents of other religions in this broader remit for salvation. The doctrine of Vatican II is limited to those who have not had the chance to respond to the invitation of the gospel in a meaningful way. But let's take a step back and consider all of the people who are not followers of Jesus, for whatever reason. What happens to them in the end? There are a whole host of answers to this question, but I'll focus on the three main ones. Condemnation, annihilation, and universalism. The condemnation answer asserts that those who do not say yes to Jesus in this life will be condemned in the next, for all eternity. Whether this involves simply the absence of God, perhaps God honours their decision and leaves them alone finally, or a more conscious form of torment or punishment varies among accounts of what condemnation looks like. The annihilation argument, which is sometimes called conditionalism, says that people who don't accept the gospel will be punished for a time but then cease to exist, that is, they'll be annihilated. It's based on the idea that eternal life is a gift, it's conditional upon belief in Jesus, and that those who do not accept the gift won't suffer eternally in hell, but will instead be destroyed. Hell, the second death, meets out punishment to the degree required by divine justice and no more. And finally, we have the idea of universalism, which argues that all people will eventually be reconciled with God and share in everlasting life. Universalism can be found beyond Christianity, but Christian universalism identifies Jesus as the agent of redemption the locus of salvation, even as it argues that all are ultimately saved. Let's hear Ben's thoughts on the subject of universalism. Christian universalism has been increasingly popular in recent years, as as you'll know if you've read some of the books on this topic. 
it seems like judgment is out and love is in. Judgment feels a bit sort of 80s and 90s. The new thing is, is a stronger affirmation of the love of God. And I can understand that, but I'm not completely comfortable with it myself. One thing I don't want to lose is a pretty robust conception of divine judgment. When I look at human history, I think this is a mess. The nations and the rulers of this world, they really need judgment. When I look at my own life and the lives of people I know, sometimes I also think this really needs someone to sort all this out. You know what I mean? Someone somewhere has to separate the good and the bad. Someone somewhere has to make a final verdict about what's right for the human heart, what's right for human history. I don't personally want a type of universalism that just treats judgment and sin as if they don't matter because love and embrace and affirmation are so much more important. And in fact, the way the Bible talks about divine judgment, I think does point towards an ultimate reconciliation of all people to God, but it's a painful reconciliation. It's like passing through a fire. It's a reconciliation process that doesn't ignore the wrong you've done, but confronts it and pulls it out with the same, in the painful way that a weed is pulled out. There are things that need to be uprooted from our lives. That is not going to be a pleasant process. The idea, though, that some people are bad and will be consigned to hellfire and some people are good and will go into bliss, I just don't think matches the facts about the human heart. All of us need the hellfire and all of us need the embrace of divine love. One of the early Christian teachers, Origen, argued, basically saw hellfire as a purifying process that awaited everybody beyond this life. And he pointed out that some people might be purified relatively quickly if they've already learned how to love, if they've already said yes to God, if they've already learned how to open their heart to the light of the truth, that purification process might be a pretty quick one. There are other people whose hearts might be so hardened, so closed to the love of God, people who have so systematically filtered out the truth and embraced the lie that when divine love finally embraces them at the end, it might feel like a torment that goes on and on and on and on. And Origen argued that after ages and ages and ages, God would patiently, slowly, lovingly clean people up, teach them how to live in truth instead of lies, teach them how to say yes to love instead of closing their hearts to it. That's, that's a kind of, uh, I, I think that if I can call that a kind of tough universalism, that's the one that appeals to me a bit more uh, rather than a, 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 a somewhat soft and sentimental universalism that says in the end, everybody's loved, in the end, everybody's okay. So which position is correct? Eternal condemnation, annihilation, or universal salvation? How we answer this has ramifications for how we think about earthly justice as well, by the way. Ask yourself, what do you think the purpose of a jail sentence is, or prison more generally? Is it for people to serve an appropriate amount of time proportionate to their crime as punishment, thereby rebalancing the scales of justice? Or is it to provide them with the opportunity for rehabilitation, 
to separate them from the rest of society for a time, perhaps for society's protection, as they undergo the reflection, the healing, the counselling and training required to be a good citizen. Is justice punitive or retributive, or is it restorative? I'll be really honest here and lay my cards on the table. I don't think the idea of eternal conscious torment as a punishment for rejecting Christ is consistent with the character of God as it is presented in the scriptures. Nor is this position consistent with a solid interpretation of the biblical passages on the subject. It just doesn't add up for me that a loving and just God would punish temporal sin, that is, sins that are time-bound to within a single lifetime, for all eternity. Such a punishment seems wildly disproportionate, and I can't reconcile that with the nature of God revealed in Scripture. The punishment is not equal to the crime. And when this idea is coupled with the proposition that God fordains this, as it sometimes is, that some are elected and predestined for eternal life, while others are predestined for eternal punishment, well, then I find that all the more unreasonable and untenable. But that's a tangent. I just don't believe that there is a place beyond the reach of redemption and divine love. I think a better case can be made from Scripture for the possibility of annihilation, which at least concedes the injustice of eternal punishment for temporal sins. And there are certainly passages that talk about perishing as the alternative to eternal life. For example, John chapter 3.16. And there's a whole discussion around how to understand Jesus' use of Gehenna that needs to be reckoned with here. I don't have neat answers in the end, but I come to passages like Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 though, which speaks of the reconciliation of all things to God with great hope. Or 1 Corinthians 15 chapter 22, which says that in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus is described as making atonement for the whole world in 1 John chapter 2. Romans chapter 11 verse 32 describes God as having mercy on all. As Ben highlights, reconciliation does not rule out judgment, but it is rather the goal of a divine judgment that purifies. Now this is not the whole picture, and a survey of all the biblical texts that talk about divine judgment and mercy, about life and condemnation, is more than we can do here. On the surface, at least, there seem to be some contradictions, but I believe a coherent account can be developed by digging deep into some of these, understanding them in their context. To me, the kingdom of God means redemption. What is broken now will be repaired. What is sick, healed. But the kingdom's not simply restoration either, a return to some innocent Garden of Eden perfection. It's a new creation. So with all of this dismissive talk about hell and the suggestion I put forward back in episode 16 that being saved by Christ does not necessarily always require a specific belief in Christ, you might be wondering about the subject of evangelism. What's the point, you might ask, of telling people about Jesus if everything will work out in the end anyway? If there's no eternal consequence for those who don't choose Christ now, what's the point? Well, I quoted Rowan Williams in that earlier episode, who contends that a relationship with Christ is vital for us to live into our full destiny, to be all who we were created to be. Why would you want to wait for that? Surely the sooner you begin, the better. The Christian joins a communion of saints who are all living according to the story of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. 
as the church, they enact God's mission in the world, which is to work toward the kingdom of God. As we partner with God in this work, we are most truly ourselves. We do what we were made to do. Again, right puts it best. Christian mission includes bringing real advanced signs of new creation into the present world in healing, in justice, in beauty, in celebrating the new creation and lamenting the continuing pain of the old. And isn't this a much better reason to follow Christ, to live your life in a way that imitates Jesus, than fear, than a desire to avoid going to hell? To work toward the building of the kingdom of God in earth in anticipation of its consummation? We choose this because it fulfills our created purpose. It makes us our best and fullest selves. When it comes to the destiny of others, I'm a hopeful universalist, but I recognise that we cannot know for certain. With Abraham, I say, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's Genesis 18 verse 25. I place my faith in a loving, good God who has created all things to find their fulfilment in union with God. What do you think? I've only scraped the surface here, but I encourage you to look into this if you have questions about heaven and hell, about the scope of salvation. What future awaits us, not just believers, but the whole creation? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.